Hello and welcome to University Challenged with me, your host, Tony Kent. Now, where can a one-way ticket to Israel take you? For Brad Tip, it was the beginning of a lifetime of unshackling himself from expectations and following the evolution of technology from manually dealing with mainframes through to advising US and UK public sector on the finer points of IoT and cloud computing. In our continent-crossing conversation, Brad explains why personal traits are so important, the value of digging your heels in, and why it is vital to keep your integrity when making career decisions. We also explore the challenges in being a non-graduate in corporate America and how Brad's experiences have influenced the way in which he and his wife approach education with their children and why this is shocking to some of their Seattle neighbours. There's also interesting insights into the maturity of the hiring practices at some of the world's largest brands and what it feels like to start over as a startup. Hi, Brad. Hello. Good morning for me. Evening for you. It is. It is almost, almost evening. Um, thank you for agreeing to come on University Challenge, the podcast. I know a little bit about you. We've spoken a couple of times before, but for the listeners today and the listeners to come, could you please share your full name and what it is that you do for a job? I can. So I'm Bradley Tip, and I'm the Chief Growth Officer of a um, software company, software and systems integrator called Terraway, uh, based okay. over in Bellevue in Seattle. Great. Okay. Um, and just quickly, what does a chief growth officer entail? Ah, that's a very good question. Um, it, so I, I joined this particular company because they're, they're, they're a few hundred people and they want to go from a few hundred to a few thousand and they need to kind of grow in every dimension. But being a few hundred people means you don't necessarily have all the resources that a larger company would have. So my job um, is part sales, part marketing, part finance, part whatever the CEO tells me, frankly. Yeah. Um, um, but it, it's, I mean, there are large companies who do have chief growth officers and they're probably more focused, but really it's being able to look across the company and to see what needs to be done and to try and combine those efforts together. That's really my role. Right. Okay. Um, so we're just going to go back in time a little bit because that's sure. what you do today. But what are your memories? Of secondary school, did you think you would be en route to becoming a chief growth officer? No. Uh, so my memories of secondary school are not particularly enjoying it. That's probably high on the list. Um, definitely feeling that, uh, you know, something was being done to me rather than <laughs> learning there was this kind of, I probably wasn't as aware of it as I am with my own kids now, but yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's not about the, it's not about the learning. It's very much about the teaching um, and wanting to leave secondary school as fast as I could. Uh, frankly, those are probably my abiding memories. My mum also worked there, which, uh, which, which, uh, um. Probably, I don't think it helped or hindered things in history, in you know, in, in hindsight. But um, I definitely wanted to just get out as soon as I could. Did people know that your mum worked there? Did your peers? Uh, yeah, she was a lab tech, so most people knew her. Um, and my mum's also pretty small and pretty fierce, so okay. um, most of the kids, most of the kids, if they didn't know her, they found out pretty quickly. Don't cross okay. Mrs. Uh, it's not going to end well. Um, and she had access to all the chemicals, so yeah. you wouldn't. And she wasn't a teacher, so she could hit you. In, back yeah. In <laughs> yeah. Um, and where did you go to school? Uh, so I went to school. I grew up in Chelmsford in Essex. Yeah. I went to the Boswells um, School. I was about to say high school. I'm so used to being in the US now. It wasn't a high school, yeah. just Boswell School. Yeah. And then actually when I left... I went to the Chelmsford College for Further Education to do my A-levels um, because um, it was much more relaxed and I felt I would be, I don't know, it's, it's all interesting kind of how you think back and versus thinking at the time. I just wanted to get out of the school 
and anything was better than where I was. And honestly, uh, I don't think there were a lot. Of, I suppose I could have gone. There was a polytechnic, not a polytechnic. There was um, there was another college in town, but that was that was the one I chose. And it seemed it seemed better. And um, what did you um, when you left secondary school? Um, were you uh, did you leave with a brace of brilliant results or did you uh, so I, did, I, I suspect my teachers I, I could probably go back and read my reports but um, they were probably they probably would have written should have done better I, I got all my O levels but I got what did I get I got I think I think I got an A or a couple of A's and then two B's and five C's and okay. And so I did perfectly respectably, yeah. but and looking at my own children now, they're exactly like me. It's like minimum effort, like yeah. minimum bar. If that's the bar I've got, if a C is the bar I've got across, that'll be fine yeah. for me. Yeah, I don't need an A. I, I got an A in the subject that I was interested in, which was technical drawing. That was the one I just enjoyed. So yeah, great because so I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And what what did you choose to study at um, college? Uh, all the wrong things, actually. Okay. I, I, chose, um, I chose maths, physics and computer science, um, which the computing was quite interesting. The maths and physics I did because at the time I wanted, I thought I had an engineering angle that I wanted to go down. But um, I probably should have done something different. I probably should have done economics, history and geography. Right. In hindsight, um, okay. but you know, for all the for all the right reasons, I made all the wrong choices. I think the computing worked out okay, but the, yeah. the other two were just a slog, frankly. Okay, um, and when you did your A levels, was there any expectation or suggestion that you would go on to uni? What was your plan, and what did your parents and teachers think? So. Um, so I think I didn't want to go on to uni. I'd had enough of education by yeah. that. Um, I've had enough of someone doing stuff to me. I was like, no. Yeah. I had no plan to go to uni. My parents hadn't gone to uni, so they were very open to, well, I guess you'll just have to get a job then. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think, you know, all in all, I wasn't under any pressure to do anything apart from find gainful employment. Um, yeah. And, you know, I had friends of mine who were going on to uni, um, but they were all doing, you know, like microbiology or mm-hmm. weird things that didn't seem to be like, wow, you're interested in that? And they were like, no, but I can go to university. And that never kind of made sense to me. No. So, Yes. And um, did you enjoy college out of interest? Did you have fun? I had a lot. I probably had too much fun um, in in reality. I I loved the fact that it was a very free, um, you know, it was was like you're going to succeed or fail based on what you do. The teachers are not there to to haul your backside out of problems. Uh, So I did enjoy it. I had a great two years. Um, But... You know, I think, as I said, I was, I was probably doing two of the wrong courses, which didn't engender me to doing as well as I should. And the yeah, computing yeah. I enjoyed, uh, and I did reasonably well at that, but um, I did enjoy it. And I think I enjoyed the freedom versus school that I had there. Yeah. And you gave me a little, like, I had a flashback to, I remember being told you could call the teachers or lecturers by their first names. That's yes. a revelation. Yes. <laughs> Human beings, not, yeah. not, you know, not like your parents. Yeah. It's, it's, a different, um, it's a different environment. It is, yeah. And I think, and I think from what I hear, what I know, it, that you don't get that at sixth form within a school, as I understand it. I think the teachers are still Mr. or Miss Miss. Well, you Um, you know them all. You're not suddenly going to start calling them a different... It would be weird. (laughs) Yeah, it would. Um, So what was your first job then? You left college and did... I left college. I went travelling, actually. Ah, Um, I I ducked off to Israel for a few months and then worked my way back 
yeah. um, through Europe and came home um, with a very long beard, much longer than my beard is today, actually. Very long beard and very long hair, which I know as a bald man, that's <laughs> uh, um, uh, but my dad said I came home looking a little like Jesus, um, which is, uh, I, I'm not sure that it was a compliment. Um, uh, then, had, you, had you had a revelation? I need no, to know about no. I had had, a, I had had a really good time. And my plan was actually just to get a job mm. and to um, put some money away and then go travelling again. Uh-huh. Um and I, so I came back, I was doing three part-time jobs and then my brother was working at BP, interestingly, yeah. you mentioned earlier, and, um, and he got me a job or, well, I, his old boss was looking for people and I was like, I, I was like, I'll do anything. Um, so I joined BP basically as a filing clerk. Yeah. I worked for a group called, I can't remember, I think they were called like Central Services. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, maybe they still do, you had that everyone, every department had a filing system and they needed people to run that and also build new ones and renovate them and do whatever. Yeah. So I, I joined as a filing clerk at BP. Wow. Starting um, bottom for sure. Yeah. I mean, literally filing people's yeah. paperwork indeed yeah. um one thing i'm curious about is what do you feel that you gained or learned from the time you spent traveling um that's a good question um i was always quite into so i went traveling on my own mm-hmm. and i was always reasonably independent and so, so I'll give you a, an example. When I when I flew to Israel, the flight I was on, which obviously is the cheapest flight I could get, yeah. um, was mainly full of people who were going off to kibbutzes. Yeah. And they were all on these organised, they knew where they were going, someone was meeting at the airport, they were going for so many weeks and they were going to come home. And I had a one-way ticket and the address of the kibbutz office in Tel Aviv, which I was going to go to, which turned out to be wrong, by the way. Um, so, so when I got off the plane, ninety-eight percent of the plane mm. were picked up and went, and there was me and two other people left okay. at the airport. And it was like four in the morning, so there were no buses, and we we kind of we were all hanging about, so we got chatting to each other. It turned out one of them did have the right address, yeah. Um, so I ended up in the right place. Didn't go to a kibbutz. That's another story. Um, but I was always pretty, uh, you know, it, that didn't worry me. And mm. I think it reinforced that um, piece of, you know what, the world's a pretty decent place. Mm. If you just kind of make a bit of an effort, it will turn out. Lots of people will help you. And and it's really interesting. And you're going to meet people you'll never meet in the rest of your life. And mm. I think that's my experience of traveling. I met all of these people who... You know, I think about how would I meet those if I was going on holiday today, yeah. you couldn't possibly you would you wouldn't have the same experience. So I think it, it gave me a little insight into not being afraid to throw yourself into an environment that you weren't that you didn't know. Yeah. Um and did you um go to BP looking like Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> no, my Jesus look lasted about two days, I think, when I got home I and mean, I was sent to the barber who tidied me up. Okay. Um, right. Um, so no, I, I, you know, it was it was a time when everyone was suited and booted. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that I was filing, that was you, you look you looked smart. Yeah. Part of the expectation. So no, a bit of a different look for sure. Okay. And and a bit of a different. I mean, to go from college to a one way ticket <laughs> and, and the wrong address yeah. to a global corporation um yes. what happened from there so you're in at the at the bottom floor so, I, so it was i mean it was a really interesting i think there were lots of things that i learned along the way so the first was you know i was put in a group where there were like 10 of us in an office all servicing different floors in britannic house which was the head office and yeah, very quickly I worked out that 
I, I was not the same as the people I was working with. Oh, um, okay. Like they were like, some of them had been doing this job for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was just a bit of a lack of, um, of them wanting to get on or just experience new things or just to try something different. They were very much like, we're in our channel, we're, we're, we're doing this. So that was interesting for me. I can remember thinking, well, that's interesting. And then just the realisation perhaps that, yeah, you know, I've got a group of people here. And when, so one of the things we did was file telexes that came in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the telex would come in and it always had, you know, where the, for BP shipping a lot of the time, for where the ship was. Yeah. And I, I would just pick the telex up and it would be a capital city or a port city. And I would know which country that was in. And my colleagues who worked there sometimes for years just didn't know where that. And I was like, how do you not know yeah. where this place is? So there yeah. was this kind of very quickly, this understanding that this is interesting. And then at the same time, some of the groups I worked with, you know, in talking to the people who were running those teams, like in, I, I did a lot of work for shipping and for finance and and for oil. Like, like they could see that they could use me for other things. So I was starting to get pulled into other roles outside of that. And I think that started to make me realise, oh, that's interesting, you know, there's other roles here that I could step into and people seem to want to pull me into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, it's just interesting in hindsight thinking about it. And one thing we should do now, I worked in a freight company for a few years, so I know about telex machines. Yes. Um, we should explain what a telex is, <laughs> just in case. And yes. So telex is a system, uh, you can think of it as like pre-email. It yeah. was like um, an electronic messages that were sent between machines. And the difference was that rather than making a phone call, you typed in your message at one end and electronically it was transmitted to another machine at the other end and spat out and someone read this telex and either just filed it or acted upon it and sent another telex back so a little like one-to-one point-to-point email you had to know the number you were going to and back from you couldn't just like there was no like addressing system in there you know you weren't brad at bp.com you were a phone number um, and and you put on who it was going to in the telex, and you hope it went to the right one. Frankly, <laughs> well, that's, I can still remember the noise that machines used oh, to yeah. make. But it's freaking out. Yeah. yeah. Um, what what's the role that kind of stands out for you most that came next after that? You know, you found your feet in BP, realised you've got other capabilities beyond filing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, the next role, um, you know, was pretty pivotal for the most of the rest of my life. Was my brother had gone to work in their um, in their IT group, running their as a systems operator, running their mainframes, and they had uh, availability, and I was like deemed worthy of that. So I went to work um, for their. I'm trying to think what it was called. Um, Again, it was like a central services team. So we ran the mainframes for BP oil and for BP exploration. Um, and I was a mainframe operator, which at the beginning means you're a tape monkey. Yeah. Um, so again, for people who don't know, these big 12-inch reel-to-reel tapes yeah. that you would mount on the machine and then there was a vacuum tube mechanism that you know enabled it and the tapes would be read and written to. And the, the mainframe programs would request different tapes at different times. So you were basically just swapping tapes half the night or half the day, depending on uh, what shift you were on. And then from that, it was like, hey, there's this operating system that runs and learning about how that worked being sent on, you know, IBM, um, VM courses and MPF courses and stuff like that. Um, so that, that kind of got me onto the IT side. And at the same time, PCs were literally just being born. Yeah. Uh, there's a good story about BP bought the first 5,000 IBM PCs when they came out. So we had a, we had a machine room with them stacked up in. 
<coughs> we didn't know what to do with them. All we discovered, what we discovered was that IBM didn't have any of these. So their resale value was about four times what we paid for them. Wow. There's this whole like uh, gray market for these things. So we, every now and again, someone from Merrill Lynch or one of the big finance companies would turn up at our back door to collect 10 of them. We, we, you know, we weren't involved in the sale, but there was obviously something going on in the background. It was hysterical, really. Oh, that is funny. Yeah. Um, so you're kind of there at the uh, birth of the PC. Very the much. Place. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you moved out of oil and gas expert at, at some point. What what yeah. prompted you to, <clears throat> to switch well, industries? Well, uh, again, yeah, this is uh, this probably says more about me than anything else. So I've been working for BP for about six years. I've, I've kind of risen up through the ranks in this, on on um, on our operation systems, and I was looking after some of the networking stuff because BP operated a wide area network. You know, if you were drilling a drilling a rig in Saudi, we had a connection to that, which at the time was probably quite um, kind of groundbreaking, um, uh, and then. You know, I think I would have been happy to keep going and getting on and doing something else. But I, I, um, I went to the London Car Show one year, yeah. and Lotus were just launching the new Elan. Yes. And I wanted to have a look at one, so I, in order to get on the stand, I basically agreed to buy one. <laughs> and came back from the show thinking, well, I guess I'd better find a job that pays me enough to pay for it. So that was what caused me to go job hunting yeah. because um, uh, I needed, a, needed to earn more money, basically. Yeah. Um, we, all need, we all need these drivers in our lives. And, and it's, cons it's consistent. I have to say on yeah. this podcast, something that crops up time and again, and it was key in my career choices, I wanted to be MW. That was mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at least three other people that have been on have said that an early aspiration for car of their dreams yeah. um prompted them to go i'm gonna go after that so interesting yeah. yes wow. same, same for me so i went and interviewed in fact i was i spoke to an, uh, an employment agency mm. um and you know about wanting a, another job and they were sending me off on these interviews and i i knew i wanted like the right i didn't want to just go anywhere for the money i wanted like mm. i want a good place and at one point the employment agency, um, I was basically turning jobs down. Mm -hmm. And the employment agency asked me if I would just go to some of their um, uh, options because I was get, constantly being offered. They looked good that I was being offered a job. Um. So, so for a three-month period, they were paying me for each interview I went to just so that I could turn it down, which was kind of weird. Um and one of the interviews they sent me to was St. Marks and Spencer's at Stockley Park, just north of Heathrow. And I liked that one. Mm. Um, so I I accepted that one. I think the employment agency were quite disappointed. They weren't, you know, yeah, uh, they just sent this guy along. Um, so, so I ended up at Marks and Spencer's. Um, and that, that I originally... Initially, I went in looking after again mainframes and wide area networking, but they were getting very much into the client server business, and so I was I had this PC background, and I kind of the, the Unix side of things wasn't hard to learn at the time. Yeah. So that that took me away from the mainframe world and into the client server world. Yeah. I was doing some programming then. Um, for for one of their systems, so again, I was kind of more you know technically on that side. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I again, I was there for a number of years, and then then what happened was um, so my I was using a Unix and OS two client server system, and Windows NT launched, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I could have the same environment as client and server and that would make my life easier and so i started advocating for that with the manufacturer that i was using on the client server system and at the same time um uh marks and spencers were doing training on 
Windows NT, and I convinced them to do one of these training packages. So rather than going on a couple of courses, hey, why don't you buy this package, which gives me six courses for the price of three, and the exams for Microsoft Certified System Engineer. Uh-huh. So I was like, you know, I wanted to do this, and I just threw myself into it, and I think it took me, it only took me three months to do the entire thing. Um, And then my wife had gone to work at uh, at Microsoft, and she was like, we have these people called systems engineers, and they seem very much like you. (laughs) Come and talk to them. Um, And so that was how I made the leap from doing a technical role in a company to doing a technical sales role in a software company. Ah, so isn't that interesting? Because um, I, I sort of see like your brother was at BP. Yes. And then your wife. Family connections. At... You always need family yeah. but, but I like that your wife has gone, I think these people are a bit like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think well, she, you would enjoy this. She yeah. was doing a sales job and she just said to me, we have these this, 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 this group of people, because I mean, at the time, Microsoft UK was probably like 300 people. Yeah. So, you know, you knew everyone there. And she was like, um, she was like, there's this group of guys and they seem to do exactly what you do. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think they seem to be having more fun. And I, I think, I think the, we'd started to, I think she became aware of what stock options were at that point. Yes. <laughs> um, so, and I think I was like, yeah, that, that looks like a really interesting company. They're an American company. I might get to travel. Yeah. You know, it was a new era. It was 90, 96 I joined Microsoft. So obviously we had all the Windows 95 pipes a year before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the very uh, natural kind of thing. And that's three very different industries. Yes. What did you observe culturally out of interest? Uh, I think it was so interesting. So, so BP was a you know long established company. They were mm. probably around their height when I was there. Um, Fantastic systems, fantastic um, staff development. You know, they, they really had a – it struck me that this was a – when I went to work for them, it struck me that, yeah, there's a lot of people here and everyone knows how it works. Very orchestrated. Same with Marks & Spencer. Um, I kind of went to work there at certainly their height. Um, and, you know, they were so mature in how they behaved around staff how they recruited people, what they recruited them on, and then once they got them, what they were going to do with them. Um, and, you know, the fact you went out to the stores, it didn't matter what job you were in, you went out to the stores and you worked in the store for a while because yeah. because that's the sharp end. That's what we're here for. You know, yeah, everyone yeah. else is there to support the store and the customer engagement. Yeah. And then I went to Microsoft who were, I mean, they weren't a young company when I joined them. But they were, and still are, I think, unbelievably immature in how they hire, how they promote, how they look for diversity, how they, you know, how they, even to this day, you know, they're very, it's very, um, uh, what's the phrase, what's the right phrase? It's very like, we're just hiring this widget. And as long as you fit the widget, you're in and great and everyone will love you. But really, we don't stand back and think about how we really, really do career development, how we make people valuable to the business, how we move you between departments. Mm. You know, at M&S and BP, if, you, if I'd have at one point at BP, they were kind of interested in putting me into their graduate track, even though yeah. I wasn't a graduate. Yeah. And they were like, I was like, well, what will happen? And they were like, well, over the next 10 years, you're going to work in all these different departments. Yeah. Because their view was in 10 years' time, 
you'll be really you'll have, you'll have this great bunch of experience and you'll be really valuable to us and yeah. Marks and Spencer's was the same you know they were like if you were a buyer you bought shoes for for two years and then they moved you departments and you thought oh, hang on a minute I don't know anything about women's underwear I'm a yeah. shoe guy no no you're a Marks and Spencer's person you're a buyer you need to yeah. know all these departments so that in 10 years' time, when you're heading one of them, you understand the impact on the other groups. Yeah. Microsoft, by contrast, is, is vertical to the ridiculous point where actually if you work in a particular group yeah. and you go for a job in another group, their, their attitude is not, well, you have all this Microsoft experience. It's, well, you don't know anything about... <laughs> Our finance because you've worked in public sector for the last few years. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, but I know how Microsoft works and I know yeah. all the vertical stuff. And if you bring someone in from a finance background, they know none of that. They may know yeah. finance, but they don't know any of that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's a real, I, I see it to this day. Uh, they're constantly, they, can't, they still to this day do not think like that. And I'm gobsmacked, frankly. And so what happened to you there? Where did you live? Which vertical <clears throat> did you live in, Brad? So I, I joined the wonderful world of public sector, uh, yeah. which was completely new to me, never having worked yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, but I have to admit, I loved it. Um, you know, we were dealing with, uh, we did everything at the time. We did local government. We did national government. We did the police forces. Uh, did a little bit with, um, like, the intelligence services, which was very interesting. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, and then, and, and during that period, I'd done some work with universities um, back in the day when we were trying to get them to use Visual Studio to just do something, anything, frankly. Yeah. Um, and that, Buy and that it, was, please. Well, well, we'll give it to you, frankly. Yeah. Um, um, and um, actually, that's, that's probably an interesting point for you um, in this, in that I, I can remember being in, in about 2000, being at, going to Southampton University and talking to them about the use of, um, uh, of Visual Studio. And, and they were like, well, I can't see why any of our students would be interested. And one of the lecturers said, actually, our CS101 course is going on at the moment, which is the big like 300 people, 300 students in it. Why don't we go and ask them? I said, great, because I knew that the students would think differently. Yeah. We went into this big lecture hall, and then one of the lecturers said, I've got this guy here from Microsoft. He's got a proposition for you. I'm interested. So I said to them, look, you're all doing a degree in computer science. Recognize we're not replicating that. But how many of you would be interested in doing a Microsoft certified um, system, um, Microsoft certified developer course at the same time? So you had this certificate at the end of your course. Yeah. And out for three hundred people, two hundred and ninety nine of them put their hand up. Wow! And the one guy I can still remember, he was sat right in the middle. He didn't put his hand up, and I said, "Oh, you're 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 the exception." And he said, yeah. "I'm already doing it." They they were all, their view was, yeah, my degree is kind of handy, but when I look for jobs, yeah. everyone wants you to be a Microsoft certified developer. That's a real nail in the, you know, that's a real something I can hang my hat on. And the lecturers were amazed. They were absolutely amazed that any of their students would value that over their degree. And it's so, God, like you say, it's so telling. Um, yeah. And how did you, uh, how did you feel sort of that the first time you were in a university was to go in and highlight uh, well, to, to university? Hugely, I've, I've always felt hugely fraudulent. And, you know, most of the rest of my career has been spent in and around universities and research organisation. And uh, I, I kind of chuckle um, a lot because I'm talking to these people and I'm like, if you knew my educational background, I would probably wouldn't be allowed on the premises, you know, or I would if I was cleaning your floors. Yeah. And, and yet there they are listening to me give them advice about what they should be doing. So mm. I, the irony uh, and, and imposter syndrome, I've certainly felt a few times, um, 
but I, you know, having done it long enough, and and probably there's something around um, lack of awareness on my side as well. Um, yeah. I, it just I, I, more and more I've realised that education is not working the way that it should work for most people and that this certification progress program that goes on with getting your degree yeah is very broken in terms of what you're going to do with it in terms of the rest of your life yeah um, you know I, I still you know you can look at a job advert for a company today and they'll say we want 10 years experience and a degree and you're thinking yeah. so if someone's got 10 years experience whatever degree they did is 10 years out of date and you don't care you're not saying you know yeah. you know it's like it's like we want this thing in your past that you've done why what and what yeah. does it matter you know it's 10 years ago yeah world has changed so dramatically and yet companies are still stuck in this you know in this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy um and it is i was just sort of thinking about when we go back to like the tech you originally worked with and and i remember like telexes as well and having to have ip addresses for websites instead of oh, searching yeah. and like you say what has happened in the past 10 years certainly past 20 years um you can't cover that that wouldn't be part of the curriculum no, um, I, I yeah. one of my favourite questions to ask people at interviews is um, either tell me how a computer works, <laughs> like what are the components yeah. that you need, and they're not yeah. taught this these days. These days, you know, oh, you need an input-output system, yeah, keyboard and mouse. You yeah. need a screen. You need you know memory. You need you know, and if you ask people, the smart ones will actually figure it out, even though they've probably never been taught it. Yeah. Um, and even better, I ask people when you turn a when you turn a phone on, mm. or you turn a computer on, how does it manage to talk to a router? What's the pro? Walk me through the process of DHCP. I mean, I don't tell yeah. them DHCP. I just tell them how does that happen. And I will get smart people, and they'll say, "I've never really thought about that." Well, I guess I guess when you turn it on, it must like say, "I'm here." And something yeah. must acknowledge that, and there must be this pros, and they can they can actually the good ones will build you the whole process in like yeah. two minutes. Yeah. But it staggers me that no one is taught this anymore. No. You know? And if you didn't grow up with it, that the you know this layering that's happened where where constantly people are being pushed up the stack means yeah. that the knowledge of what's going on down below is absent. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a bit like, and I'm just going to plug my computer in, which I thought was plugged in. God, don't ask me how a computer works. The cable is hanging out. Oh um, dear. Yes. I wonder if it's a bit like people who don't know where their chicken comes from. They think it comes from a pack in a supermarket. I think that's right. Or, or it's like my kids who have no idea that if their car doesn't start. Yeah. What's the process you would go through to, you know, well, well, when you turn the key, do you hear anything? Do the lights, oh, you've got power, the battery's working. Okay, so the, the starter motor working. And they, like, look at you like, what's that? <laughs> like, they have no, if I lift the, my eldest boy, if I lift the bonnet on the car and ask him to identify parts under there, yeah. he wouldn't have a clue. He seriously wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> um, maybe it's the reliability of their cars these days. I mean, for you and I, we, we both mm. grew up in an era where you damn well had to know what to do because your car was going to break down at some point. My car had a choke. Yeah. Had a ch oh, yeah. yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, and now we live in an era where, I mean, my oldest boy, we got him a, a stick shift, as they call it here. Yes. We him to learn that because we thought it would be good valuable thing my youngest one has an auto because his next car is going to be electric and electric yeah is so yeah you know but equally just that basic as you move up the stack mm. you miss this this base level of of 
knowledge that allows you to do like basic root cause diagnosis. I often had, I, you know, I think that's one of the things that I, one of the things that I had from the beginning that is still valuable today where there will be a problem and it's the ability to start going back down and yes. just doing the basic. For me, what is me the basics? Well, let's swap these two parts over because that will tell us whether it's A or B that is broken. Mm. And if they both, if neither of them work, but it's probably not that, it's probably something further down the chain, yeah. you know. And I, I, it worries me. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm just staggered that some of these people with incredibly uh, high level degrees from very good institutions are lacking some of the base knowledge that I think you need in life. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, to come back to your point, sometimes when I'm in universities, I'm looking at them thinking, how do you not know this? Yeah. Why, am I, why am I here having to explain this to you? You know? And um, there were a couple of uh, points that you sort of raised in my mind. What, one is, um, what prompted your move to work for... Um, a smaller software organisation. So you left Microsoft. Um, uh, so what prompted me to leave? What prompted me to leave really was a couple of things. Um, one, Microsoft has this mechanism where when you hit fifty-five and you leave, you can take your unvested stock options with you. Ah, I did not so know that. Right, I had just hit fifty-five. So yeah. your finance people will tell you you should leave. Yeah. Um, because you can go somewhere else. It will give you different incentives. Yeah. Um, and the other was um, that there'd been a change of, of management and emphasis in Microsoft. And I, I think, I think I'm uh, being judiciously polite. Mm. I, I think my new manager and I did not see eye to eye. And I came to the conclusion that I could probably change his opinion of me, but I didn't want to. Yeah. Um, I thought, you know what? If the company's employed this kind of person, they obviously have their reasons for doing that. But it's, you know, it, it's my choice. And so, uh, you know, I chose to, to go. And the company I, I've gone to and actually tried to employ me last year, they had a new product they were bringing to market and they, approach me so I, I knew that there was an opening you know and it and also I just think the the opportunity to go and work in a completely different sized environment yeah you know it's it's certainly been a roller coaster the last year in terms of learning how they work and how they don't work and it's been fascinating as well being a partner again to Microsoft, I, I was a partner. I had a couple of years out at Capgemini many years ago. Um, but being a small partner and seeing how you're treated, both good and bad, yeah, um, is illuminating. Um, yeah. So, and did you find it um, challenging to go from operating in very large corporates for most of your career to then working for a an agile, because you know that's the word, isn't it? Nimble, agile, yes. um, organizer. Did you find that you had to take time to settle into that? Is it? I think I'm still you in a different way. It, if I'm honest. Um, Pardon? It, I think I'm still settling into it. Mm. Um, you know, eight months on. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's very different um, mm. in every respect. Um, and I don't see, I think there are lots of things, there are lots of things I kind of thought, oh, well, this would be different and that would be different. Mm -hmm. But um, the most interesting thing to me, and I think this is particular to the company that I've gone to and to the CEO that I have, is they are so uh, invested in their people. Mm -hmm. Like if you get someone who's not performing, it's not a case of, okay, well, we'll just get rid of them. It's a case of, okay, well, what do we do about that? How do we change their role to be something where they're more interested, where they can perform? You know, I think I think in the 10 years, this we, we just had our um, annual meeting for the company. Mm -hmm. 
And in the 10 years that the company has been around, we haven't fired a single person. Wow. Which is pretty amazing, really. Um, you know, in every case, it has been, no, let's adjust your role to the thing that fits you and fits us. Mm. Um, now, you can argue when you have less people, those people are more valuable to you. Mm. Um, you know, in both ways. You, you're, you're, you're smaller in the company. There's more for you to do. But, yeah. you know, you are an asset to that company. And I think one of, the, one of the learnings in going to a smaller company that I've learned is that, you know, a lot of these big companies may win the title of best place to work or whatever. But actually, they do not value their employees in the same way that small organizations have to. Yeah. Um, and you've only got to look at all of the tech layoffs that have gone on in the last three or four months to see that. Yeah. That, that yeah. in a large organization, in, in many large organizations, you're a disposable asset. You fit or you don't fit. And if, you're, if your particular jigsaw piece is decided that they're going, you're gone. Yeah. Um, and, you might and get that, to go on a performance improvement plan before you go as well. <laughs> if you have the choice of that, yeah. You know, um, and so I think I think it goes back to, you know, joining Microsoft 24 years ago and realising that they were pretty immature at that stage. But even today, the large tech companies, you know, the downside of them, and I suspect I suspect this is true for a lot of other companies as well, but because the tech sector has been so attractive and has paid so well, mm. the, the, the downside of that is really the way it treats its employees is not very good. Mm. Um, you know, you've seen some extreme examples lately with Mr. Musk at Twitter, but I think that's just a very public version of what has gone on in private. I mean, as you and I know, Microsoft every year has had rifts that have gone on. You know, people are ripped, and and it's not usually the people; it's the role. I mean, that, yeah. that always made me laugh. It's like, hang on, this person is really good, mm. and you're going to get rid of them. Well, if they can't find another role, and I'm like, they're an asset, and you're making it their responsibility. To, you know, surely you want to hang on to that person and find the right role for them. Mm. You know, and that that kind of disposability. I think I think in time will haunt them. Um, it'll be a point where they have to change. And I, what I I kind of take from some of what you said, I was thinking about what you said about when you were at school, when you said they, they were just like doing something to me, and yeah. you can end up in some workplaces where you feel like things are being done to you that, that you don't like. Yeah. Um. But you've been very clear on saying, well, actually, I do have a choice and I can yes. choose to yeah. go there or there. Um, how do your experiences inform your approach and attitudes to your children? Because you, you've mentioned that's your sons. Excellent question. Yes, that's an excellent mm. question. I think um, I feel very lucky actually um when i look so the area that i live in is dominated by you know microsoft amazon and google i think half the half the parents at my children's high school which is public high school work for amazon microsoft or google wow it's not a normal place in the world actually um and the pressure i see on a lot of those kids to go down a particular path because their parents went down a particular path and that has led them to a job in Microsoft, Amazon or Google. And in America in particular, being out of work means you lose your health care. Yeah. And, and that can be catastrophic for people. Mm. So there is this, you know, I always wondered why Americans work so hard. And it's because fear of layoff because yeah. there are no social safety nets here, is yeah. genuinely frightening. It's a genuinely frightening thing. Yeah. So I think against that background, I do understand why the parents behave the way that they do. I think, I, you know, we've been very lucky in that because neither my wife nor I went to university, we haven't felt that imperative with our kids. 
Mm. And my oldest boy, um, you know, was a little like me. I think he felt like he had to get through high school. Didn't really know what he wanted to do, but he he's very social. Um, he loves uh, this kind of group dynamic that you'd all be working on something together and doing something. So he he's just finished at culinary school. Yeah. And he's got a full-time role here in a restaurant locally. Um, yeah. But I think most of my peers here think I'm slightly insane to let my son do that. <laughs> um, and I'm like, there are, there are chefs that make a lot of money, mm. you know. Um, and, you know, okay, you've got to work. It's a tough job. You've got to work hard. The hour's awful, as he's just figured out. Yeah. Um, but he's enjoying it. He, he's mm. doing something he likes. And then my younger son um, is a musician, and uh, he's he literally just been for his audition uh, to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston, which is, mm. is for, for non-Americans, it's it's – it's a pretty unique music school in the world, actually, in that it's not a conservatory. It's a, mm. It teaches contemporary music and it teaches production and sound engineering and songwriting. So, you know, whilst anyone getting a job as a musician, as a performing musician is hard, the music industry has a huge number of roles and a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a opportunity in there actually. So yeah. he hopefully, we'll, we'll pursue that. But again, I think you know all of his teachers at school when he's told them what he's doing, and they've said, "Well, what's your plan B?" He's like, "What do you mean? I'm going to music school. I'm going to this music school because it has a great you know set of opportunities for me." And they're just like music. That sounds frightening. That sounds frightening. It sounds like lots of unemployment. What's your plan B? Because you have to have a plan B here. Yeah. So I, I think I've been lucky. I think had I have gone down a different route, I would probably be pushing my kids into a university here um, um, where where I don't know that they would be particularly happy. Maybe you're just that crazy, eccentric <laughs> English family. But, uh, is, is, your wife, is your wife English, from the UK yes. as well? Yeah. yeah. So I, I do think I do think many of our friends look at us like that. Um, <laughs> but equally, my you know my my older sons has many of his friends went to uni, and you know they did their first year, and then they're kind of like, yeah, I don't think this is for me, and they're kind of like now they're back doing some college work or some, and you can see them just. I mean, it was a revelation to me to learn that the average. The average length of time people spend in university here is like five years because most of them don't get through the course on time. Oh. Yeah, quite often people will spend, you know, they'll be they'll go into a sixth year. Right. To just make up the classes that they need to. And because it is a much more, um, you know, it's not as focused as UK universities where you're doing a course. You have to do a breadth of study. You know, you can get people and they're like waiting on this one class to finish and they didn't complete it, so they need to do it the next semester or the next semester. Uh, um, but, it, you know, I, I, it's, it is a different system here, but I'm kind of glad at the moment. I mean, in some respects, my son's going into that. He's doing a four-year bachelor's, hopefully doing a four-year bachelor's yeah. degree. But really, that's kind of an aside. He's going, to, yeah. he's going to the School of Rock for four years. Yes. <laughs> and he's going to be with his people, and that's yeah. the important thing to him. Yeah. You know? so I think I've and, been lucky. And what do you think has kind of stood you in good stead throughout your career? If you could sort of pick up some, I don't know, traits or your attitude to life, what do you think has really helped God, you? I can think of the bad ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should have probably changed. I think... Um, I think I think very early on I knew I don't know whether I knew or I worked out um, that your personal um, your personal traits are really important. Like don't don't pervert yourself for a company or a boss or somebody else. That that actually 
if you make a bad decision and you know you're making that for the wrong reasons, it will come back to bite you in time. You're better to dig your heels in and be unpopular, but right. Yeah, and even if the company, you know, gets rid of you because of that, you'll have your integrity. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that kind of I think I, I'm I'm fairly sure there are times I took that too far. Probably didn't help my career. Yeah. Um, but when I look back, I think um, I think that that you know your people would today would talk about your personal brand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it is it's integrity. If you've got integrity and you kind of know right from right, I can remember. Many years ago in Microsoft, them changing a policy where um, they were bringing in uh, individualized targets for the technical salespeople. But we worked across different opportunities. Yeah. I was like, I don't understand how this is a good thing because now, you're, now every time a, uh, an account manager comes to me and says, will you work on this? I'm basically going to say, well, what's in it for me? Yeah. And I was like, is that the behavior that you want? Yeah. And, and I can remember the, the manager at the time really struggling to justify why we were. And I was like, but this is insanity. And, yeah. and it's not like the company's not making money and it's not like we're all doing well. And why are you doing this? And yeah. they really couldn't explain it. And I look back to that today and I still think, yeah, that was a terrible mistake. <laughs> take your technical people and operate them like that. You can you can do all of that without doing the without you know putting everyone on personal targets. It doesn't it doesn't build the community. It doesn't you know a lot of these things get lost when you do that. And that was exactly what happened. You know, people became very like, no, I'm not working on your opportunity because there's, there's there's no SQL server in it, and I'm a SQL. Yeah. there's a little bit yeah. of SQL, and I need some help too bad yeah you know um you know you get the behaviors you ask for yeah i did i heard someone once say that it was like it was driving unnatural acts yeah yeah <laughs> unnatural acts but yeah you're yeah. quite right they, they do weird things to people when you do things like that to them weird things happen yeah not, always, not think, good things no i think questioning authority mm. um is a good thing as well. And, and also realising when authority is not there to listen. Um, yeah. Remember, again, you may remember this. Um, there was a time in Microsoft where they decided we needed to fix our image and they sent people out to the subsidiaries from Corp. So, and I was like, I remember sitting in, in the building and in this big meeting and saying, yeah, but the problem isn't here. The problem is in Corp with your attitude and how your behavior and this like intransigence and blah, blah, blah. And the guy who'd been sent over was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. I was like, okay, I'll just shut up. And, <laughs> you know. I wonder if it could have been the same person because I came in through acquisition and we were told that we had to do this big program around customer and partner experience. Yes. And we were like, well, well we understand how to treat customers, but the guy that came to see us, told us to call him by his nickname, which, of course, nobody was going to do that because nicknames are granted, not demanded. Yeah. But he, he sat there with his feet up on the desk, and I will never, ever forget it, just thinking, yeah. what are you doing? No wonder people think you're arrogant because you, you <laughs> Because are. you are. Yeah. 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 Uh, was, yes. um, I, yeah. I suspect I know oh, exactly hello. who you're talking about. And, yes, it was exactly that person. Yeah. Uh, oh, I love it. Oh, we were meant to speak to each other. Yes. <laughs> I think so. Brilliant. Um, so, well, I often ask people what's next, but um, what are you hopeful for? I reckon because you're only eight months into your new current role. You know? Yeah, what are you hopeful I'm, for for the future. Well, I think professionally, I'm hopeful that we can take the company to the next level. Uh, yeah. It's a tough. It's a tough thing, uh, but I think we're making the right steps to do it. And we had a good, frankly, we had a good company meeting recently, and you can see the evolution. So that's good. Mm. I think on a personal level, um, I think I, I, I'm really intrigued to see what happens over the next couple of years with this 
hybrid work, working from home, going back. Um, I, you know, I, I, I still don't feel like anyone can predict what things are going to look like in two or three years' time. And I think there's going to be more stratification of that. And I, again, I'm not sure what that means for companies and the situation. You know, Microsoft are just finishing their campus, their reimagined campus, but, you know, 20%, it's only 20, 25% of the workforce are currently on it. So, like, like so what does that mean? What are they going to do with all those buildings? Yeah. Uh, or will the change, you know, will people go, I don't know. I'm fascinated to see what happens with that. Um, and then for me, I think in the longer term, it's probably a return to the UK. Uh, I think I will retire in the UK. Um, you know, lots of reasons. Um, the National Health Service definitely being one of them. Versus, yeah. Versus life with no safety net in the US. Um, yeah. You know, family and and I also think that the European and I I'll often include the UK in this because it's it that more socialist behaviour. Mm. I find there are aspects of America that I find tragic because people cannot embrace that. Um, and so I think in the latter years of my life, and I don't want to have to think about things like that. I think that would be more attractive. So I think I think for me. That's how I think about that. Professionally, hopefully, that we can, can take the company to the next move. Mm. And then, you know, interesting to see how the workplace changes work. And then, you know, for me, I think in, I don't know, five years' time or so, looking at going back to the UK. I mean, maybe I'll go back to the UK and continue to do this job because you can do this job from anywhere in the world. Every possible. Yeah. yeah, but and actually interesting because for your sons, they are working in industries or will be working in industries which um, don't have that kind of, oh, I might work from home today. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> they need to be where true. they are. Yeah. But, but equally, both of those, I think one of the things they have is both of those skills are highly transferable. I mean, you can go anywhere in the world and be a chef. Yeah. You can go anywhere in the world and be a musician. Yeah. So um, I, I'll be fascinated to see whether they, and I think it's very difficult because sometimes you look at your kids and you think, oh, this is going to be the one that stays at home and they're the one out around the world. Oh, this is the one that's going to travel and they're the one that actually stays close to home. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see in the same way that I didn't expect to be you know, when you talked about, right at the beginning, you talked about being in school. I certainly, I always wanted to go and live in another country, but oh, I certainly fantastic. never expected to go and spend 10 years in Seattle. Right. Um, and that's been a, you know, it, it's such a different thing to live in a country than it is mm. to visit a country. Yeah. Uh, and you gain enormously from that. You gain perspective that you would never have. And I yeah. love that my kids would do similar things and go and live in places. And then you just, I think you break down these barriers of um, you know, people tend to have when they label people and put them in boxes. You mm. you, you get good at stop, stopping that from happening. Yeah. Um, so I'm fascinated to see where they end up. Um, and actually, I just thought, so you've gone from a position where you've, challenged the view that many people have about what it takes to get into a large corporate you've challenged the view that you need a computer science degree to have a career in tech and you've challenged educational institutions by educating them on yeah. what they could be teaching their students and you're currently challenging the views of people who have very strict ideas about how you make it in America. So this is even a challenger all uh, along. I've never really thought about it like that. Uh, mm. I think my wife would probably say I'm just pig-headed. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll take the challenger mentality because that sounds much better on my CV, frankly. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people live in fear all the time mm. and they're frightened of doing things. And I think, I think you have to 
unshackle yourself from that. I, I say that, though, as someone who grew up in the UK with a lot of safety nets. I can see why in the US that's so much harder to do. Yeah. Um, unless you come from a background of privilege, yeah. your ability to, um, to you know, I'm going to go off and do this. You can see people guy like, you really are going to end up on the streets. Mm. And I think, again, the benefit of living here is being able to understand the way that many Americans think and why they think like that. And you may not yeah. agree with it, but the important thing is, okay, I get it. I get why people think like this. Yeah. I get why it's so hard to behave like that. So, mm. you know, look, if you think I've been a challenger, that's been built on um, the foundation of uh, a country that does invest in the right thing to allow people to take gambles. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of UK people here working, and I think a lot of them have got here because of that that mentality. Hey, I'll go take this gamble because it's not that big a gamble. Yeah. Whereas I think for for many Americans, it's a it's a far bigger roll of the dice, which is a sad thing for a country with, uh, you know, such an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. Oh, entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> My kids yeah. have been calling it. It's like, you're watching too much TikTok. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, it's been just absolute pleasure to talk to you, Brad. Thank you for being so honest and um, sharing so much of your time with me. I appreciate it. I always love talking about myself. Uh, so it's a, it's a more than a pleasure to do that. And it's been, it's also made me think about a, a lot of things. I should say, I should certainly go away from this rethinking a bit of my history. So thank you for the opportunity to do that. Lovely. Thanks, Brad.